Well, welcome again, everybody, to the Rugby League European Federation podcast. And um, we're going to get a part two. Uh, Danny Kazanjan has rejoined us. Uh, last time with Danny, we focused on the Lebanon years, where he was there for seven or eight years. And of course, when he left Lebanon in 2010, he became the second ever general manager of the Rugby League European Federation and, and, and held that post for for uh, um, eight years. So really is a, a good part two to get stuck into with Danny uh, this time around. Hello, Danny, how are you? Hi, Graham, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, I'm good. And you're in France, Danny, that's where you join us from. How, how, is, how is the family and yourself settling in there? Yeah, all good, thank you. Yeah, the last time uh, I was on the podcast, I was in, in Buckinghamshire. Yep. But in uh, in October we uh, we emigrated uh, out to France in rugby league country, so we're about forty minutes west of uh, Avignon. Uh, but yeah, all all going well here. Oh, yeah. Have you have you bumped into Christophe Juvray yet? Because we had him on the on the program uh, two or three episodes ago. Yes, I was uh, very uh, very pleased to have a very pleasant lunch before one of the lockdowns here in Avignon, in the beautiful city of Avignon, um, a couple of months ago, drove up to see Christophe. We, uh, we reminisced and about the past and talked about uh, the state of rugby league in France and, and where it's going. They just had the new elections for, for the, the current regime. Um, so yeah, running to, running to Christophe is as uh, ebullient as ever. Great, good stuff. Well, listen, Danny, I said that at the start of the show, you, you, you became the Rugby League European Federation general manager. Just tell us how that came about. I had been made the Euromed uh, officer by Kevin Rudd and Richard Lewis, uh, I think in 2007, 2008. Um, and in 2010, Kevin had uh, intimated that He'd been working at it for as long as he, he wanted to. He was ready to move on. Um, he was actually part-time, um, even though he put so much effort and, and hours into, into the work, he was still running his own um, engineering consultancy. So at that point, the job went out up for, up for advertisement and um, I had wanted to come back to the UK. Then I'd be living in Lebanon for uh, eight years. And so it neatly coincided uh, with that, and I applied for the job and was interviewed by um, by Richard Lewis and the interview panel and was lucky enough to be appointed in the summer of 2010. Right, great. And what was um, what was the first things that you had to get stuck into? Uh, clearly, a, a strategy. Uh, the the organisation had been so focused on organising international competition um, in whichever countries were playing rugby league. Um, in Kevin's years, I felt as though it was really important for us to have uh, a strategy to focus on. So I immediately set about uh, writing uh, a strategy that encompassed two World Cup cycles. Um, that also coincided with Richard's push to changed the federation from just an association to an incorporated entity and board in the summer of uh, 2010 um part of that uh, reorganization that richard led was the introduction of a uh, new new uh, a new composition of the board including member elected directors 
and independent directors. So the new general manager, new strategy, new constitution, new legal entity and new board really all came into being in, in that summer of 2010. So it really was the start of a new era for the European Federation. Yeah, no, and, and I was I was very um, privileged to be uh, one of the two first member elected directors. Uh, and Indeed. I can remember when we we then brought in independent directors. And I, I suppose, you know, sometimes, Danny, people say, well, it's all a bit dry, that's the governance and so on. But it, it, it was probably a timely thing to do to expand because at that moment, really, it was England and France, uh, very important partners. But... You know the game had grown so much since the 2003 formation of the federation it was it was a timely thing to do wasn't it yeah absolutely and richard was largely responsible for recognizing that um and ensuring that that was communicated throughout all of the member nations though there was a lot of ambition amongst the existing members some of whom at that stage had been playing rugby league for almost uh, 10 years. Some of the, the countries that are, are now quite recognisable as rugby league playing nations, but back then they weren't that recognisable. But Richard was adamant that the members now had to have more of a say in the governance of the organisation. Um, the new constitution brought in a weighted voting structure, so full members would have uh, four votes and affiliate members would have one vote. So there was this real sense of democratization um, and making the federation more more obtainable to its constituent parts and 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 more pluralistic sure you mentioned there about um the work that your, your predecessor kevin had done and, and a lot of focus on on competition you know fundamentally we're, we're here to drive the participation of the the, the game of rugby league but it, it in terms of um European Championship men's and, and World Cup qualifying, it's quite a jigsaw, isn't it, to, to, to continually be dealing with, um, to put it together as a calendar, uh, particularly when, um, in many ways, uh, more at the, at the, the, the B, C and D level, as, as new countries emerge, maybe some drop out a little bit. Quite a task, isn't it, Danny, to put it together, to try and meet people's needs, but to create a, a regular structure? Yeah, that's right. We, I mean, the game back then internationally, if people cast their minds back, there wasn't really a, a comprehensive international calendar. Um, it seemed as though it was always the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that, that people were chasing. So at the RLEF, we were, we were adamant that we were going to try and um, introduce as much stability and long-termism as we were able to within the confines of the larger, uh, as it was the RLIF uh, system back then. So we had under Kevin started the, um, the, the European uh, Championship, which has already existed since the 1935, but since 1935, but underneath that there was um, European, uh, European Shield and European Bowl. What we did is we, we in, in our bid to democratize the uh, the RLEF we, we we consulted a lot with the members they 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 agreed with our proposal that we should change the name to European Championship um, and I think in in 2011 we took the decision to make uh, European Shield the Euro European Championship B and it would go from being a three team competition that was played annually to to being a four team competition that was played 
in a league format every two years. Underneath that, Euro, Euro C was the new name for the European Bowl. Um, but that maintained its three-team uh, three-team format. Um, but as you say, there were, there were always more teams uh, who wanted to participate. So it was it was difficult not to, to um, not just create new competitions all the time to accommodate new organisations, but to show them a pathway how they would get into the existing competitions. And of course, in rugby league, we 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 tended to due to a number of reasons, timing, resources, um, lack of ability to large portions of the year, uh, tended to um, double up our official competitions with World Cup qualifying as well. So it was always, it always took a lot of planning and revisiting um, our planning. But I think um, between 2012 and, and, and 2018, when I left, it was a, it was a fairly stable competition structure that, I think the members really appreciated and you can see that a lot of them benefited through their participation in it. And I'm going to presume something like the likes of Greece men, you know, were maybe at those at those kind of levels of B, C and D. And now, you know, you, you're going to see them go to a World Cup. That's that's quite a, a journey to look back on from your point of view. Yeah, I mean, there's so many examples. I think I think Netherlands is also a great example. Um, Greece is a, 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 a newer uh, case, but um, Greece's uh, latest iteration dates back to I don't know, 2017, I think, their, their current organisation. But the Netherlands was always a, a really good example, a really well-organised, um, realistic organisation that had been involved in RLEF competition for several years. I think it started as part of the, the World Cup qualifying in, in 2005 or, or around that region um, and then when we introduced the uh, European uh, uh, tiered system uh, the Netherlands, Netherlands was in it and they, they, they were able to find their place and I think at the, at the beginning they, they were they were uh, they suffered a little bit on the field but you can see if you look back now over the last few years how they have used that stability use that consistency of competition to build up not only their national team programme, but their whole organisation around it to support the national team programme. And now their results on the field are, are really impressive. So there are a number of examples like that. Czech Republic's another great example, not aspiring to the same level as some of the other countries in, in the RLEF, because frankly, they didn't have the access to an expatriate player pool, but a consistent performer using the regularity of European competition to improve uh, player experiences, to improve coaching proficiency, and ultimately to improve their, their results and performances on the field. So there was a lot of good, good examples of how countries use that stability to their advantage. And it's interesting, you picked up there about um, actually the sort of B, C, D levels. In some ways, um, it was easier, easier to organize um, master of their own destiny for the European Federation because of course the top level was was at times disrupted by whatever England, Australia and New Zealand were doing. Do you, do you just want to probably think around about that time 210, 11, 12, you know we made a bit of progress but then it got hampered by changes above that then particularly affected England's participation. Yeah, we, we were, you're right, we were always at the, the tyranny of the, the, the really senior nations at the top. I think 
I think in my experience, the most notorious example uh, was between 2010 and 2012. When I joined in 2010, I was fortunate enough to attract um, Alitalia to become the, the, the main sponsors of the 2010 uh, European Championship. It was an excellent tournament. Uh, Richard Lewis said it in, in his time. It was one of the best tournaments that he'd been involved with. We got over 30,000 total crowds in, in three French games, some like 15,000 people against uh, Ireland, I believe in Carcassonne, or 12,000 around, around that mark. Really attractive football. The, the French sports minister attended the final game. Uh, against Wales, which was a, a nail-biter, 11-10, I believe the score was, or 12-11. Um, but then Alitalia, having been so impressed um, and wanting to double their, their investment in the European Championship, um, England then decided to uh, play against uh, France and Wales in 2012 as a, as a, a precursor to the 2013 World Cup and obviously that that tour two of the best sides at the European Championship, meaning that uh, ultimately we we uh, had to had to retreat from our partnership with uh, Alitalia. But we, we began to see um, the development of the, what we now know as Middle East Africa and Americas as well around about 2013-14. Can you just give a little bit of insight as to what happened there? Yeah, that was um, as you know, uh, RLF's always been uh, a misnomer. It's it's had non-European countries involved in it. And I think back in 2012, I got a phone call from the then chairman of, of London Scholars, the, the English club, Hector McNeil. Yep. Um, Hector's married to a, a Ghanaian woman and, and he was interested in, in starting the project in Ghana. And as far as I know, it was a fairly unique project. Never has the sport just tried to transplant itself uh, to begin in a new country. Oftentimes, um, fans of the sport who are expatriates who, who, or, or are emigres tend to want to continue with the sport they love in their new home. But Ghana was completely different. It wasn't a call from the locals. There was a call from a gentleman in England who wanted to start it. So we, we contacted uh, UK Sport. They put us in touch with uh, one of their leadership programmes, um, through the University of Ghana in Accra. We went out there um, with, with Hector's sponsorship. We were able to recruit um, a, a manager for the project. Um, and that really gave us the flimsiest of beachheads. But the UK sport from that point became a really uh, trusted and valuable partner for the, for, for the sport, for, for the European Federation and, and continues to be so. I mean, it's, it's, it's partnering with the, with the World Cup at the moment as well. But they, they matched Hector's uh, investment and then went on to sign a, a series of different agreements with us for, for Ghanaian development, for African technical development, for development of Sierra Leone. So they became a, a really fruitful partner. And, and the, West, the West African project, I think, stems from the UK sport and, and Hector McNeil's belief in the Ghanaian project. And now, as you know, Cameroon plays rugby league, although they, they started in 20, 2012 um, through the efforts of, of another gentleman, Carol Manga, but Nigeria on board. And my colleague and your colleague, Ramon Safi, is speaking to um, 
numerous other West African countries. So the, I'm, I'm particularly fond of seeing how the African project is growing. It's a it's a genuine genuine um, uh, development area for the sport. Um, there's some really serious work going on there, um, and as was the case with Europe in in Kevin's time. As you go on and get more neighbours playing, there's more ability for international competition. The, the journey time isn't so long. It's less expensive. And that will encourage and stimulate further, further growth. So I continue to watch that space with, with great fondness and excitement for the sport. And a similar thing was happening with the Americas. Obviously, there'd been your um, USA had been, been <coughs> a long time. And then we had the likes of Jamaica appearing and and obviously Canada as well, and, and, and we'll see, you know, Jamaican men at the World Cup this year and, and Canadian Canadian women. Um, so really, um, what, what, what was the consolidation of the Americas? Was that in a similar similar way to the creation of MIA? Yeah, I think, was, I think there was a, a general acceptance, certainly at the RLEF level, that the, the direction of travel um, necessitated rethinking how the game was organised internationally. And the RAF was certainly the influencer in this regard. Back in 2014 at an RLIF meeting, I believe that was the first time that the, the, the issue or the question of an America's region and an MEA region were broached at RLIF level. Mm-hmm. And it was at that meeting that there was an acceptance that those two regions would have their own standalone World Cup qualifying pathways. So before that, Lebanon would have to qualify through um, through Europe, South Africa, Atlantic region. Um, so at that point, there was a there was a real sense of direction that while no time limit or target was given, there was an inexorable pathway towards towards an America's confederation and an EMEA confederation. And of course, fairly recently, IRL announced that that was uh, official strategy now and that those two regions would eventually, when certain benchmarks had been or, or are reached, will become will become confederations. Yeah, no, I think that's that's the really interesting thing. As you see, after about five, six years of 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 that initial structure put in place and um what has been agreed and, and was announced that actually is a roadmap all the way through quite rightly to the MIA and Americas that um they would have their own standalone confederations just like Europe and just like Asia Pacific. And uh, again it's one of those moments where people say well that's just a bit of a structure change. But they're the, the, the big moments in reality in terms of where we were 15, 20 years ago and what it means for those people. Um, in those countries and in those in those confederations, it has a major impact for them, doesn't it? Yeah, it's really like I view it as the tectonic plates of of the of the game shifting, and it's unthinkable that 15, 20 years ago, people would would be thinking realistically that we would be at this advanced stage, and we're in the middle of it, and fans are in the middle of it, so it's it's difficult to view it in its historical context but this is this really is uh, an era of huge change for the sport i think if european federation has shouldered so much of the work of, of non-european countries in providing that home that guidance 
compliance tools, governance tools, competition, organisation, um, referee, supply. Um, and if you think about it, when we get to that point where we get new confederations, not only are local people who are expert in their own regions going to be uh, providing the type of spark and impetus that the European Federation got in its earlier days, it'll also allow the European Federation to refocus and to become more productive as well. So I think once we do get to that point, and all of this, remember, is driven by the accomplishments of the National Federation members and, and their proficiency, we'll be in a far, far stronger place than we are today. And today we're, we're in a far, far stronger place than we, we were at the, the, the dawn of the RLF in, in January 2003. Yeah, yeah, no, it's certainly something that I think, um, uh, like you, I, I look forward to and, and, and uh, we, we need to embrace um, without a doubt. Just, just Danny, talk us through your approach to um, that email or first contact from somebody saying in a country that's not been recognised, we've got we've no known activity and it just comes sometimes out the blue of, by the way, um, you know, we'd like to get recognised. Here we are in country X, could be in a, you know, anywhere. But let's let focus on ones in Europe, maybe. What's your approach to that? How, how do you take people through the, the journey to... Hopefully, in a year's time, they're still they'll still they're still involved and, and and they're moving forward and such like. Well, I, I philosophically believe that all the people who are working in in sport, especially in the RAF, the IRL, APRLC, we, we're all here to serve the members. <clears throat> we're all members-based organisations, and without the members, our umbrella organisations don't really exist. So, having high capacity, productive, stable members is in everybody's interests, ours and theirs. That being said, I'm, I'm myself fairly rigid when it comes to compliance and governance. So I believe, I believe uh, strongly that making sure that, that, that rigid governance uh, is in place is going to be beneficial to everybody in the long run. And it's very tempting and I was a victim of this in my early years as an administrator to not recognize where good governance isn't employed and where a project is, is going well, you tend to leave it alone. But if you don't introduce good governance, then when some of those factors that meant that that project was doing well are removed, it's more susceptible to, uh, to collapse or at least some kind of slowdown. So, I would always just point and the membership policy changed for the first time in my RLF career in 2014 when it became um, the then RLIF policy as well. And then it changed again um, a year after I left in, in 2019. So my view was that, that we would send a new applicant the membership policy and then we would work um, very closely with, with that applicant to ensure that they understood all of the provisions of the membership policy and adhere to it and then applied when they were ready to apply. And we did reject, we did reject, um, as you will know, without going into nations, we did reject applicants um, when they when they didn't meet the policy. Some, some applications needed two or even three attempts to pass muster. Um, um, and, and now I think the, the standards have improved even more because we 
as a sport have got to understand through consultation with our members what's important, what's less important, what they need to be stable. Um, so you know, all roads, in my opinion, lead to, lead to good governance. And um, we'll see the, the fruits of our work, I hope, in the next few years when the members are more stable, are more productive, you'll see less implosion, um, less collapse, and a, a greater appreciation for, for, for good governance from, from, from everybody involved in the sport. And in that, in dealing with so many different countries, you must have learned an awful lot about how different national governments treat sports organisations. And there's so many, so there's a little bit of a game of, you know, um, the, the, the sports would come to us and say, can you recognise us so that the government will not recognise us? And we said, well, we need some kind of government recognitions as part of you. So what did you, what are the kind of, can you give any sort of differences that you, particular differences you found amongst um, different national governments needs and requirements of recognition? It maybe might surprise people, for example. Well, the differences are, are, are frankly vast. I mean, just sticking in, in Europe, which has got a highly sophisticated uh, government sports network, Take a country like Cyprus. In Cyprus, I believe you need you need three clubs to get a national national federation. In Germany, you need at least ten thousand members in in multiple states. So, though that that divergence between those two countries is indicative of, of the vast differences from one from one um, jurisdiction to another, and you'll get you'll get everything in between. From myself, I've managed to. I've managed to see uh, National Sports Authority recognition of one of our members over a relatively informal meeting. Um, and then on the other hand, I've had to work very closely with national federations over eight, nine years to achieve that mark. Uh, so it's, it's a really vast difference. Um, it, it, it does depend on the jurisdiction. A lot of, in a lot of countries, rugby, in inverted commas, is not a, a hugely popular sport. So I can quite understand when uh, rugby league uh, arrives on the doorstep of a sports ministry or, or a National Olympic Committee and says they want independent recognition from, from rugby union to the government, that is perhaps another organisation to administer, another bureaucracy, ultimately another hungry mouth to feed. So I quite understand where any, any reluctance to, to uh, recognise our, our members may come in these, in these non-popular rugby areas, but we try and find out what the, what the law says. So not all countries have got a sports law. Um, a lot of them do in Europe. Um, so we try to find out what the sports law said and then adhere as closely as we could to that sports law. And even, in, even when we could demonstrably uh, 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 adhere to that sports law, that was not in, it, in of itself um, a guarantee that we would get uh, recognition. Greece, you mentioned Greece before, that's a really good example of, of that where we knew exactly what we needed to get recognition, but um, although we didn't, uh, we, didn't have, we didn't have it at the moment, um, we, were, we were informed by the sports ministry that there was a, a, a other things that we needed to, we needed to get. So really, really wide divergence of uh, necessities. Sure. And, and that's really interesting because you'll sometimes see people who are, who are great, you know, fans and talking about it and say, well, why is, um, 
why is a certain country not recognised another one is and, and say, oh, they must be better. But the fact is, then you've got to look behind that and say, well, what is the accreditation levels of, of each national uh, government? They can be very different as the example you gave there. So it is, it is a lot of work, as you say, to often to understand them and then weave the way through all the different levels. You talked, Danny, um, about you know the, the, the investment from UK sports. So you, there's a, a, a third party looking to help invest. And of course, um, there was a there's been a growing relationship with the European Union. Um, a number of projects. Just tell us about what you inherited in that, and what you then developed with the European Union in, in your time as the general manager. Yeah, when I took over, there had been. An aspiration to partner with the European Union for obvious reasons, but there there hadn't been any successful partnership. So Richard Lewis, myself, we we and the board, we were adamant that we would engage as fully as we could with the European Union because it was such a, a vast resource out there for social and cultural projects. So we went out to Brussels to to meet with them. Um, they gave us a, uh, a, a guided tour, if you like, of the various projects and departments that we might have to apply for. Uh, we met them with members of the European Parliament just to try and um, act as a lobby for us going forward. And it was from that point on that we realised that there was no there were no easy wins with the European Union. We just needed to apply ourselves for different uh, different grants. The first one we, we got was actually in 2010 or 2011, really early on, and that was through the European Commission Office in the United Kingdom. The smallest of the grants that I was involved with, 5,000, but that, it offered us um, a bit of confidence and the impetus to apply for more. So after that, I applied uh, for the uh, Leonardo da Vinci grant, and all of our grants have been uh, a, a mixture of good governance and technical development, because fundamentally they're the two areas that all of our burgeoning members really needed help with, and not just in the short term, but over a sustained period of time. So we got, we were lucky enough to get the, uh, to get the Leonardo da Vinci grant. And after that, we went through the, uh, through the, uh, the, the sports department of the EU, because that, they, at that moment in time, they, the EU didn't recognize sport um, as a competency, it only came in with the uh, with the Lisbon Treaty, um, and so we we got a couple of projects with the uh, with the sports department, the, the preparatory uh, uh, projects they were called, and then after the introduction of sports specific grants, um, the final one I managed to get was in 2015, uh, and that was with Erasmus Plus, which was which was a uh, um, an amalgamation of all the other different social and cultural projects under one huge banner with with millions and millions and millions of euros of, of funding available um, and that was that was the biggest one so from from project one in 2011 to, to project five i think in 2015 they each of them went up from went up in value from five thousand euros at the beginning to what four hundred sixty-six thousand euros the final one so that was a huge part of of my time at the eu uh, excuse me uh, the RLEF and a huge part of, of some of the, the stakes in the ground that we were trying to to um, to build to try and uh, provide that capacity and sustainability to our members. 
Yeah, and without a doubt that that as you won the the last one you mentioned there that ran from 2016 to 18, you know, that was a significant um, piece of activity. I think there was over 500 people uh, gained a qualification in match officials or coach education. And what we were probably talking about, 20 nations that were involved, you know, so a really big impact, a real step forward, um, Danny, yeah. Yeah, and credit credit due here to two of your previous guests, Martin Crick and Tom Mather. They were architects of the of the technical aspects, the details of of that project, and indeed previous projects as well. But the the recent one that you mentioned took took it to to the next level in terms of detail and and foresight and planning. Um, and uh, yeah, twenty one countries I think were involved in that. And the message through that project was that we needed to increase the amount of qualification available members before that had all been about level one. Now we increased level one, level two, educator level one, educator level two, and a tutor qualification as well. Um, that was the aspiration. Um, and now we are still at this point where investing in local educators, in my opinion, is, is the key to success. Um, once those local educators are competent enough, and, and there are many good examples out there, as you will know, of coach and match official educators who are extremely competent and independent. Um, when they reach that certain level, then they can just develop the sport in their own country, and they are crucially providing an authentic brand of rugby league. It's not, it's not just something that they, that they have flirted with or just scraped the surface at. They've really immersed themselves into the sport. Some of them who are educators in their countries now who have been, they've been under RDF tutelage now for six, seven years. So they're really competent, proficient people in their own right. And crucially, they're local people as well. And they're growing that authentic brand of rugby league uh, throughout the European continent. Sure. And, and another... You talked there about the um, the vibrancy and, and and the impact. Another event that um, was in place was the the annual congress. There was certainly an annual gathering of all of all the of all the nations, and I think it was regularly around the the Challenge Cup. You know, um, at, at Brunel, I can remember one occasion which Kevin had kicked off, and I think you inherited that. And over time, you we almost began to take it on the road. And, and of course, visited a number of nations. Just give a little bit of insight as to you know the move to take it other to you know another nation and then take bring in the tending process and how that's and, and the impact it has for the country who's hosting as well. Yeah, I, I was uh, I, I was and still am a big believer in authenticity, um, and I felt that while meeting around the, the Challenge Cup final and the RFL deserves a lot of credit for their generosity um, around all of those congresses in the challenge around the Challenge Cup time. It wasn't a quote unquote uh, authentic RLEF event. Um, and I felt that for us to really uh, craft our own identity and our own culture, we had to do things that were truly emblematic of European rugby league and that meant taking the congress to european countries so in in 2014 again through consultation with 
with the uh, members, we put that proposition to them and, and they wholeheartedly embraced it. And from 2014, we put it out to tender. I think Serbia, which has hosted two or three congresses, was the inaugural host. Yep. Um, and, and we got to a position where we put it out for a couple of years at a time and, and, and an increasing number of, of, of aspirant hosts would, would uh, tender for, for the rights to host. I think the, the impact on it, on the nations, I think Serbia, <clears throat> excuse me, Serbia is a, a, a really good example. Just the quality of the organisation involved there uh, speaks for itself. Um, I would say that no other country other than, the, other than England has added more value to European rugby league than Serbia for multiple different reasons. And, and Ser Serbia had the confidence to host the Congress, host it well, and through hosting the Congress, as well as other activities that it was engaged in to really provide that leadership, whereas before only England and to a lesser extent France had provided. But now these up and coming nations could see that there were, there were other countries that weren't that, that beyond their own um, size in terms of rugby league participants that were able to organise things. So I think, I think Serbia's leadership um, not only on the field and around its neighbours, but through hosting the Congress, really had uh, a knock-on effect to, to other countries. Sure. It's it's an interesting point you raised there about the RFL, you know, and, and a very good example there, where, as you say, the RFL kindly, um, you know, built it around the Challenge Cup and, and did a lot of things and, and tied it in, and people got tickets to, to, to Wembley to see the final, of course, incredibly motivational to be part of that. But it reminds me, of course, that, that, of course, RFL have been at the heart, England has been at the heart of starting federation. And over the last eight, nine years of your time there as the general manager, in other facets of how the federation was run, began to uh, come out from underneath the, the wing of England. Um, because there was a lot of back office support as well, wasn't there, in terms of um, financial, you know, financial systems, um, uh, you know, re reference to HR policies and, and such like. And in fact, you probably were employed by the RFL at the very start. So you've seen that journey as well. And that's been interesting, wasn't it? Because it's been right for the Federation to do that, but it's never wanted to overexpose itself. Um, and England, with its you know, much more mature systems, has actually been a helpful umbrella organisation probably to work under. But uh, I think now we, we are completely standalone. Yeah, I think the, the, the RFL has always provided that, um, that uh, strength and consistency behind the European Federation, given it its time to develop its own policies, which it has done over time without the pressure of, of, of um, impending implosion, for example. The RFL has stood behind the RAF's cash flow when it needed to, when, when remittances from other organisations maybe took time. But I think a good example of that migration to which you allude is that between 2009 and 2014, the amount of investment that the RFL and the RLIF put into the RLEF halved um, because the RLEF was starting to generate its own revenue and it was starting to um, rationalise its costs by its own restructuring, changing, changing its staff model. Um, throughout all of those years, there were new policies and systems being developed. 
as we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, the, the RLEF only became a, a legal entity in the summer of 2010. So that was the that was the step change for the entity to become more independent of the RFL of the RFL. And I know that a lot of directors and not wanting to put words into your mouth, but I believe you're one of them would say that the one piece of revenue that the RLEF would like to say goodbye to first was the RFL, because the RFL would then just become another member rather than a, a, a funding body, for example, that would that would support um, the European Federation. Don't think it's there yet, but the it's certainly it's certainly maintaining that trajectory, uh, and only when it starts to cultivate the European Championship as a as a profitable uh, uh, competition can it can it then start to really stand alone and have uh, have no dependence or 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 um, financial uh, relationship with the uh, with the RFL? Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 been a good journey in terms of giving birth to this child of European Federation that um, really in effect, uh, you know, there was both France and England, but very much the driving force was, was Richard Lewis and, and, and England uh, to now, um, you know, standing. Stand, and I suppose, yeah, if you, if you were, what would you be now, 18 years old, you'd be about that point. <laughs> you'd be yeah, financially exactly. independent. <laughs> Most... Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Boys, boys and girls, but you still have your up. hand out, like. yeah, yeah. You're still popping back at the weekends to get a, a good meal or, or whatever. So maybe there's maybe there's something in that. But you know, I think you're right. It's um, it's earning your own way uh, for, for 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 sure. And, and another part of that was, of course, um, you know, the Maurice Watkins became the chair in your time, um, uh, Danny. And although he came through as almost a, a representative of England in that time, he then became off the English board and. And is really the first independent chair of the European Federation. Yeah, I mean, I have been blessed to have two chairs, um, such as Richard and Morris. I've got undying respect and admiration for the pair of them. Um, I've got great fondness for Morris. I can't remember the exact year that he came on board. But I think it was 2013 because Richard uh, went back to tennis then. Um, and Morris, as you quite rightly say, had come across uh, as as the interim chairman of the RFL, um, and he he became a, a, an ardent uh, supporter, a very strong leader of the RLEF as an independent European federation. Um, few people have got the same levels of experience of international sport, especially European sport, as Morris Watkins. So he could he could really put the RLEF in, in the context of the other organisations that he was involved I think he saw sees great promise in it. Um, and uh, I think he really enjoyed his time at the RLEF. And um, it, it, it's got a, a singular uh, a champion in, in Morris Watkins. Sure. Yeah. And, and of course, your own time came to the end, Danny, in um, 2018. Uh, when you 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 got the offer to be the um, global operations head of global operations for the international rugby league was, I suppose in some ways it was a natural it was a natural progression. But there must have been a bit of sadness to leave your you know that seven eight years that you'd done solid, but at the same time ready to move on. Yeah, I think I think uh, not to put too fine a point on it. I was 
very sad to miss my last Congress because I was uh, laid low in bed. <laughs> well, you were there, you were there, Danny, physically, but you were stuck in your hotel room. Yeah, I was stuck um, in my hotel room. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, uh, I was, I was quite sad to miss that because the RLF has been and still is uh, an enormous part of my life. I uh, learned so much um, in my time uh, at the RLF. It really having been through the crucible of of Lebanon. Um, being in the RAF was a, a completely different animal. Obviously, um, it was in, it was an incredible experience. Um, just having that that privilege to work a in the sport, b with so many unbelievable people, c to get to travel around to all of these places to help people with rugby league and administer competitions. You, you, you couldn't wish for uh, a greater a greater privilege and. I have to say with, with absolute sincerity that not a day went by and, and not a day uh, does go by that I don't wake up and, and, and think how lucky I am um, to be involved in the sport that I love. Um, but leaving the RLEF, I think I'd, I'd done two World Cup cycles. I'd done, I'd done the strategic cycle. So I think it was an absolutely appropriate time for me to leave and um, allow the organisation to go on to uh, new heights. And I know it's under new leadership now um, and the new leadership will take it further than than, than it did uh, under me and I look forward to seeing it um, pass through that trajectory. Well listen Danny thank you thank you for your efforts that you gave um, there's no doubt it's a very significant part of the European Federation's um, history and uh, thank you for your time again tonight and one of the things that struck me of course like all podcasts it's, it's, it's recorded and we're at that moment just where actually we've referred to the Rugby League European Federation all evening, but uh, by the time this podcast goes out, it will be the Rugby League, European Rugby League Federation um, with, with, a, with, a, with a branding of European Rugby League. So, um, yeah, I thought I'd just uh, get that crossover moment to acknowledged, uh, moving from Rugby League European Federation to Rugby European Rugby League Federation, as you can see, I'm 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 already not quite on message, so I'll, have well, to, I'll, I'll tell you a, first board meeting. <laughs> I'll tell you a, I'll tell you a funny story. Then the first time I ever met Taz Batieri before I went out to Lebanon, he uh, walked me into the hotel where the Kangaroos were staying in Leeds and said, "We're coming up with this new project. It's called European Rugby League." So clearly, we've gone full circle. As <laughs> a good mention of Taz, there, I, th I think I saw. Um, on LinkedIn, a, a couple of months ago, he was uh, he was he was retiring. So yeah, a good, a good man to uh, make make a note of as well. Okay, well listen, folks, um, it's um, well we're marching towards March, um, and hopefully, uh, like we are in the UK, you're seeing some progress in the um, in the fight against COVID via the vaccination, and let's hope as we continue and towards spring that uh, some greater hope also rise for all of us and certainly for um, our communities of rugby league and the opportunities to, to start playing the game that we all love. Thank you.